Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. A terrifying test that you can have done for less than $100. And then we take a look at the conspiracy theory that there are Lemurians living inside Mount Shasta. Did an advanced race leave their continent only to find themselves within a California mountain? And more importantly, is that information being covered up by the Smithsonian today on Dead Rabbit Radio? Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Dead Rabbit Radio. I'm your host, Jason Carpenter. I'm having a great day. I hope you guys are having a great day too. Just a quick reminder, you want to support the show, we have merch. You'll see the link in the show notes for our merch store. Also, tell your friends, tell your family if you really like the show. Get the word out. I got flyers you can print out as well. Those links are in the show notes as well. So let's go ahead with that little pitch aside. Let's go ahead and get started with the episode. Now, the first thing we're going to talk about is from the Conspiracy Iceberg. And it's one of those that does seem like it's just a jumble of words, but it was quite easy to find. It's because it's such a specific phrase. We're going to be looking at something called, and this is going to sound technical, but we're going to dive into it, but not literally because it's kind of gross. But we're looking at the Hamster Zona Free Ovum Test. And I should, could probably say that better. The Hamster Zona Free ovum test what this okay here's the thing for ever as long as i can remember i think it's been pretty common knowledge that animals of different species cannot mate like that's just something like you can't and i think you kind of realize that pretty early on because you hear stories about like minotaur and stuff like that and you're like oh that's crazy and people go that won't actually work you can't bang a bull and give birth to a baby with a bull's head and you're like oh yeah i guess that kind of makes sense like That seems to be pretty, like, biology 101. That seems to be, like, biology 1. You're taught that before you even know about biology. It's probably to stop you from banging a dog. So, that's always been common knowledge. But, this is where it gets weird. There's a ton of research papers on this. This is a very, very common test that they do. It's to test fertility in men. Test the sperm, whether or not your sperm can inseminate an egg. And you go, what does that have to do with hamsters? Well, yeah, that's where it gets weird. So you just can't have a dude try to inseminate a bunch of human eggs, right? Because then you have a bunch of babies, and the guy's like, I just wanted to know if I was fertile. Now I got ten babies. So scientists go, okay, what if we used hamster eggs? And of course, the other scientist is like, I remember learning in middle school that was impossible. The first scientist looks at him and goes, forget everything you learned in middle school. And the guy like automatically like forgets his division table and he can't be a scientist anymore. So the first scientist says goodbye to his now idiotic former pal and explains the scenario to us. This is what it is. If you take a hamster, and really this works with any mammal. If you take a a mammalian ape and you remove the zona pellicida, it can be in any, any other mammal sperm can't enter that egg. The little zona, so this is the, that's why it's called hamster zona free ovum test. If you take an egg of any mammal and remove that zona, 
any sperm of any other mammal can actually penetrate that egg. Now, the scientists say, they go, whoa, 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 whoa. It doesn't mean that you can have a baby with the hamster. That's not what we're saying. We're saying, the scientists say, the sperm enters the hamster egg, and then immediately breaks down. So they go, see? You can't bang a hamster and have a hamster baby. But that's not entirely true. This is where it gets kind of weird. So the, re- the reason why they do this test is to test male fertility. So first, this is all sorts of creepiness. First, and this is very, very common. It's like a procedure costs 55 bucks. You take a hamster and you treat it with something called pregnant mare's serum. Now, I know what a pregnant mare is, but I have no idea what the serum is. Do they like squish? Do they like take a mare, a pregnant mare, and like squeeze them like a sponge and the juice that drops out of her you inject into a hamster? You just kind of rub the hamster on the side of the horse to get it all merry? Who knows? I don't, but you inject this, or it's treated, sorry, with pregnant mare's serum. Sounds like something like a witch would need for a pot. And so it mass produces eggs. So you have a hamster that will produce 40 eggs. Then you take the human semen and you get it all over the eggs. So imagine that, never mind, I don't need to do an analogy for that. I think you're very, very clear on what I mean. And then they look to see how many of the sperm, spermatoses, are able to penetrate so, and they're like, if it can penetrate like X amount of eggs, then that means you're fertile. If it can't, then it means that you're infertile. And there have been debates over whether or not the test is effective in actually treating or check, it doesn't treat it, but to actually check if someone's infertile. But scientists say, listen, the little sperm goes into the egg, you know all, you know the birds and the bees, but then after one cell division, it completely breaks down. However, there's controversy about that because other scientists say that's not true. What we have to do is by the time it splits into two, we shut the experiment down. And other scientists go, "Uh, that may not be accurate. There's actually a term for these things. They're called humsters. Once the egg, it's, it's a, it's, I don't think it's a scientific term, but once the sperm enters the egg, once, even if it divides once, in a lot of people's minds, that is life. Life begins at conception. It was conceived. It died afterwards. But a lot of people consider that life. And most of the papers on this are scientific and they're behind like paywalls and stuff like that. And even the ones that aren't behind paywalls, I don't understand what they're talking about. So I had to go off a... So a lot of my knowledge came in a very, very brief overview of a Wikipedia page. It's maybe like eight paragraphs or something like that. And then I followed a couple of the links, but again, like it was written for people smarter than me. But an interesting point in that Wikipedia article was saying... This can also be done in reverse, where you take a human female's egg, remove the zona pellicida, and inject that with another mammal. They also state that they've never impl- they would have to then implant it in a uterus to nurture it, and that's never been done. And I read that and I said that is one hundred percent a lie. Somebody's done that somewhere. Somebody has taken it to the next step. If the technology exists to do this, to remove the zona part and put in an other breed, an other species into that, somebody's put that into a uterus just to see what happens. I do not believe that that has never been done, ever. So is it possible to create a half-human, half-animal hybrid? According to science right now that they will admit to, it is for a split second possible to create a human-animal hybrid. 
But the next time someone tells me the story of the Minotaur and then tries telling me that that's impossible, I'm going to tell them about this. This vague conspiracy from the conspiracy theory iceberg. And say, is it impossible? I don't know, man. Somebody's done it. Somebody's put it in a uterus just to see what would happen. They're like looking at the female, the other female scientists. They're like, hey, what are you doing this week? And she's like, nope, I'm not, not putting a humpster up in me. So, but yeah, somebody's done it. Somebody's done it. Creepy though. I never thought it was even possible, but apparently it, it is. And they use it as a fertility test. And if it's that common, then the CIA has some sort of like half human, half horse guy running around the bureau. I mean, come on. Why wouldn't you? If the technology's there, why wouldn't you? Sorry, I probably just outed one of CIA's greatest secrets. Seabiscuit was an undercover agent. Okay, so the next story we're going to talk about here is really interesting. Now, I've touched on it a couple times before. And I wanted to get in, in one more example of this, and then I'm going to lay it out. Because this is a conspiracy theory I've actually come around on. Kind of odd. Again, I don't really know how to feel about it, but it's an interesting story. The year is 1904. The place... Stockton, California. Modern day hellhole. I think it's the murder capital of California. I may be, that may be Modesto or Fresno or any of the other cities in that state. They're all the murder capitals of the state. It's quite odd. But back then, Stockton was just a city. Didn't have a bunch of guns. Well, they probably had guns, but not a bunch of murders. And so in the city of Stockton, in the very peaceful, tranquil city of Stockton, everyone's like, man, this area is great. I can walk around at three in the morning. This is awesome. In the city of Stockton, a man shows up into town, almost like a music man type guy. Like, not like he literally has an accordion. He might have, but I mean, like he comes into town and he has a tale to tell the people of Stockton. He's like, first off, I'm very shocked no one tried to shoot me on my way in this town. And they're like, what are you talking about? He's like, I just give it 100 years. He goes, secondly, let me tell you a story about Mount Shasta. This man's name was J.C. Brown. And he was an older man. He was like in his 70s. And he said, I have found a passage into the mountain. And inside the mountain, I found the most amazing things. I found... Riches beyond imagination. More gold than we could ever cart out. Mummies. Ten foot tall mummies. With golden spears. And not just made of any regular gold. These spears you could bend. And then they would morph back into shape. And everyone's like, what? What?" Nobody knows what the word morph means back then. But he then shows them a clip from Terminator 2 and they get it. And he goes, not only that... I found these golden tablets with an indecipherable language. I found what I presume to be the king and queen of this underground city. They were dressed more magnificently than the other mummies. I just need your help getting all this stuff out. This story took the town by storm. And he ended up getting 80 volunteers to come out. And he would give these weekly speeches talking about the great things he found under there. Now, he did say, I'm not going to tell you guys where it's at. I'm going to go with you guys. And I actually hid it. I hid the opening that I found. But trust me, we are going to go into Mount Shasta, and we are going to come out millionaires. Mount Shasta has a long 
history of being connected to paranormal activity. Now, some people say that it's a hub of UFO activity. Natives in the area said it was like a spiritual place that they had seen. Ghosts, I mean, spirits, ancestors, stuff like that. They considered it sacred. The story of Mount Shasta really took off, though, when a guy wrote a book called A Dweller of Two Planets. There was this author named Frederick Spencer Oliver, and he wrote this book. Now, it was a, to, to anyone who read it goes, this is a fictional book. It's a story about this guy who comes from Lemuria, and we'll get into that in a second, but he comes from Lemuria, and he goes through this karmic journey of like reincarnation and struggle and stuff like that, and him and his race end up in Mount Shasta. Now, and they were kind of spread out in the area, but but in Mount Shasta, there was a city called Telos. Now, he wrote this book, and people were like, ah, it's kind of an interesting novel, but Oliver swore that it wasn't fake, that he wrote it through the process of automatic writing. So something would take over his body and write down words. He also said he would have visions of it, and he would write down the story. Now, what he said in this book was he talked about Atlantis and Lemuria. They've both, it's those kind, basically Lemuria was the Atlantis of the Pacific. And Atlantis was the Lemuria of the Atlantic. So in this book, though, he says that this race of people entered, this advanced race of people live in the middle of Mount Shasta. And he says he was getting these messages from somewhere else. Automatic writing, vision, stuff like that. And in this book, the race is advanced. They have stuff like anti-gravity aircraft. They have anti-gravity submarines, which is kind of weird. Maybe they just have regular submarines and it was just poorly written. They had television sets. They had wireless phones. They had air conditioners. They had high-speed railways. And this advanced society existed in this mountain. And this book was written in 1896. Now, of course, Jules Verne, there was science fiction just starting off in the late 1800s. And Jules Verne would write about like spacecraft and stuff like that. And H.G. Wells and things like that. I think Jules Verne didn't have spacecraft. I think he just had blimps, which were like the height of technology back then. But anyways, you know what's weird I was thinking about today? Can you imagine a world without radio waves? Like, you figure I'm like, the radio really is magic. The fact that I can turn on a box. I was thinking about if I traveled back in time the first, and I went to, like, Nights of the Roundtable days. First thing I would do is try to invent a radio. Now, the problem with that is I don't know how to build a radio today, but that would be the highest level of magic. Not like it's playing music, but that I could talk to the king when I'm, like, out on patrol. It's bizarre to think that, like, in World War I, they're like, here, run this cable across no man's land and give it to this other dude so I can talk to him. And then, like, 20 years later, they just, like, pick up a box and go, hello? Super bizarre. The radio, the ability to be able to talk to someone across distances is one of the most magical things I think humanity's ever done. A, a buggy is just a horse with wheels, and a car is just a wagon without a horse. But the radio is just like magic. You can talk across the planet. But anyway, so there there was a level of technology. Like there were science fiction writers who were predicting stuff. But it, that might lend a little credence to the fact that he may have been getting these visions from somewhere else. Now, he never got to enjoy the fruits of his labor. He died before the book was published. He died five years before it was published. His mom released it. 
But that book, The Dweller of Two Worlds, created basically was a huge inspiration on New Age movement, Ascended Masters movement, and really championed the idea of Lemurians and Atlantis and the fact that Lemurians lived in Mount Shasta. So there was already a lot, and it spawned, I mean, his that book really did a lot for the, the stuff we know about Atlantis and Lemuria today. A lot of it came from that book. Now, the idea is that... He wrote this book and it became super, super popular. The book was published in 1905, but you got to remember that it was in 1904 that J.C. that J.C. Brown showed up in Stockton. So he predated the publishing of that book. And I'll tell you this right now, J.C. Brown was a real person. He was investigated by the police. People were looking into him. There was news articles on him. There was a lot of contemporary evidence. So he, that is J.C. Brown existed. Probably gave a little bit of a spoiler with the police investigating him, but he actually existed. So a year before this book that was published that talked about Lemurians in Mount Shasta, he was already telling people there is a city inside the mountain. Now, J.C. Brown gets 80 people together, and he's like, we are going, after a couple months, he says, we are going to go into Mount Shasta. He has the expedition planned. And everyone shows up to the appointed meeting spot, they're all going to get in their cars or buggies or dirigibles or whatever they're using to take. And everyone shows up except for one person, J.C. Brown. Never seen again. Could never find him. Now, there's been some retcons, because I looked into this a lot. There's been some retcons that some of the people are saying that he took something out of the cave and, like, all of these bad fortunes, like, his dog died of AIDS and, like, his mom fell off a bridge into a ladder and then fell off the ladder. Like, there was a lot of, like, ridiculous, like, curse stuff that I only found on one website and it really felt like a retcon. They're like, maybe he befell bad luck. And none of the art- other articles talked like that. The rest of them were just like, here's a dude who disappeared. Now, he was real. Because the newspaper, and you can get a, you can see a copy of the newspaper online, made fun of him. They're like, ah, this guy had been talking about this crazy gold adventure. He went missing. He skipped town. Isn't that funny, people of Stockton? And the people of Stockton are like, man, this is the worst thing that'll ever happen to our city. Is us getting hoodwinked, right? The idea is this, was that for, when I was reading the articles, I was thinking, oh, he probably like got a bunch of investors to give him money. And then he skipped town. That wasn't true. He was investigating because everyone was like, where'd this guy go? They filed a missing persons report. The police came out and started looking for him. And they go, well, did he? he? Maybe he was just a scam artist. And people are like, he asked for no money. No one gave him money. He just needed volunteers. He just disappeared. And the police are like, that is kind of weird. Like if he had said, everyone give me 10 bucks, which back then he's like, everyone give me 10 cents. And they're like, oh, I don't know. I'll have to get a loan from the bank. Like he didn't do that. He just disappeared. The only man who knew the entrance to this tunnel with these 10-foot mummies disappeared. To this day, there's still theories that Lemurians live in Mount Shasta. People in the towns around them say, Oh, we see the Lemurians in town. They're these tall white people with white robes, and they're so gentle and peaceful and new-agey and all that stuff. And sometimes people see them walking around the mountains, and, and that may or may not be true. I would assume if you were a super advanced race, one, you'd have more advanced technology than a robe. Like, you'd have a holographic hoodie or something like that. And two, if you were a super advanced race, why would you go to town to buy squash? There may or may not be Lemurians inside Mount Shasta. Most likely, 
Oh, you want to know something weird, too? I don't want to keep going off on tangents. You know why they call it Lemuria? It's named after lemurs. Because the guy who named it says there had to have been a way from lemurs to get from India to Madagascar. But India's lemurs aren't in the Middle East or Africa. Therefore, there must have been a giant continent in between there. And I'm going to call it Lemuria. And everyone else is like, what are you talking about? It turns out it's because of like Pangaea, the supercontinent breaking up and stuff like that. But he came up with that theory way before. He's like, there's no way you could have a similar species on this island and then on this other continent. It's impossible. And then they go, well, you know, with supercontinents you could. But he was already dead. You can't no rebuttal to that. But anyways, that's why it's called Lemuria. It's named after lemurs. That's ridiculous. At least Atlantis sounds like totally badass, but... The point, the point is this. So there may or may not be Lemurians in Mount Shasta. Most likely not, but I mean, most likely not, but possibly, possibly. That's not the, that's not the way I want to conclude this episode. We've talked now about giant mummies multiple times. Actually, twice on one episode. I think I've dropped a couple references throughout the run of the show. And then once tonight. On the episode about the Death, the Death Valley men. Forgot the name of it, but it was the underground cities in Death Valley. My memory is really getting shot with this show. They had two groups of people. You had two prospectors who found an underground cavern full of giant mummies, full of gold, and they both disappeared. And then you had a third guy who, like, years later, who said he knew where the entrance was, and then he disappeared. And then you had always a reputable source, Charlie Manson, in the same area in Death Valley, saying he knew an entrance into the earth where there was a bunch of radical people down there and groovy and you could drink the milk and honey river and all that stuff and he, he got caught he, 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 but both of those areas where the prospectors and the businessman were and then charlie manson's little place are both now controlled by the government you can't go there one's a weapons testing range the other one's considered a totally off-limit nature nature preserve it's full of fish that are like ten thousand years old or the, that's not true it's full of fish that haven't gotten outside of the pond in ten thousand years Huge difference. They don't want anyone falling in the water and killing off a bunch of fish that would otherwise become extinct. That's the story. So I always thought that was weird that the two places where are apparently portals to these underground cities are now controlled by the government. And they're both completely off limits. It's not like it's Yellowstone or something like that. But here's the thing. there's You find these giants, you find these passageways and things like that. There has been a conspiracy theory for a long time that I've always scoffed at. I thought it was as funny as... There's a conspiracy theory on the conspiracy iceberg that I want to cover, but I can't find anything on it. It's that Tupac was always a hologram. He was always a hologram. He never existed. Find that hilarious. But one of the things I thought equally hilarious was Smithsonian destroys giant skeletons. The idea of a Smithsonian scientist wielding a sledgehammer in a lab coat, I just find hilarious. And I've seen that conspiracy going around for a long time. The Smithsonian spent its time destroying giant skeletons in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And I'm thinking, why would the Smithsonian walk around smashing skeletons? Or more sinisterly, making people disappear who had found passageways underground. It was always a conspiracy theory that I thought was fairly ridiculous. And you can find news articles from back in the day saying this giant skeleton was found in Texas. Archaeologists find this giant skeleton in Mexico. Look at, here's a picture of a giant skull. Here's a picture of a human-sized skull. Now, the late 1800s, early 1900s, journalism was notorious for yellow journalism. Started a war. It got so bad. They would just make stuff up in the newspaper. William Randolph Hearst, 
would just be like, ah, just print it. We don't care. So though a lot of those sources are hard to trust. But the conspiracy theory has been around for a long time. That the skeleton the conspiracy theory is that these giant skeletons were found. The Smithsonian was destroying them. One of the best pieces of evidence, and this is the thing, like that, I don't think that's true that they're finding these giant skeletons and the Smithsonian is destroying them. But one of the best pieces of evidence for that conspiracy theory is a true document known as the Powell Doctrine. Super, super brief overview. In 1879, John Wesley Powell was named the very first director of the Bureau of Ethnology. Basically, like, not ethics, but like ethno stuff, like anthropology, races, stuff like that. And he worked with the Smithsonian to the point that he basically directed their ethnology board. And he had a classification system. He came up with there's basically three levels of races, three levels of civilizations or societies, I guess would be a better term. You have savage, which is the lowest race. They're basically barely human. You have barbaric, and those people are human. They would be equivalent of the barbarians that sacked Rome. Basically, like, they have some sort of culture, but they're also very vicious people. And then you have civilized. So he saw the Europeans as civilized, and he saw the Native Americans as barbaric. He felt that they were cultured in their own way, and they did have, like, writings and stuff like that. But the Powell Doctrine was very, very, very specific on one thing. So let me read this to you. This is from his paper on limitations to the use of some anthropological data. In the monuments of antiquity found throughout North America, in camp and village sites, graves, mounds, ruins, and scattered works of art, the origin and development of art and savage and barbaric life may be satisfactorily studied. Incidentally, too, hints of customs may be discovered, but outside of this, the discoveries made have often been illegitimately used, especially for the purpose of connecting the tribes of North America with people or so-called races of antiquity and other portions of the world. A brief review of some conclusions that must be accepted in the present status of the science will exhibit the futility of these attempts. Basically, what he's saying here, is that the North America the, the natives in North America are the natives in North America and you have ancient tribes in other parts of the world Europe, India, Africa things like that if you find evidence of mound building in Native America and then you find evidence of mound building in other parts of the world that's only because humans like to build mounds It does not mean under any circumstances that the Native Americans had any contact with any civilization older than the Native Americans, and they did not come from another continent at all. When you go to, he specifically talks about the mounds, and he's talking about the Pueblos in the southwest United States going into Mexico. He said, you find those Pueblos, and there are people living in them now who are less technologically advanced than the people who built the Pueblos. That simply means that there was someone there that came from there that built it and then people just forgot how to build them. No outside interference at all. These are the civilizations that exist now and we will not take under any consideration that the Native Americans had contact with people from other continents. 
We don't know, and then he goes into detail, he goes, we don't know where humanity came from. We don't know what continent we started on. Again, he's writing this like 1876, but he goes, we don't know where we came from. We don't know what continent we started on. We don't know how we spread across the globe. So until we know those things, we have to treat everything separately. Now, his defendant, that might, you go, well, so. Here's the thing. The Smithsonian to this day still uses the Powell Doctrine. And what it says is that when, and you, we've run across this for years. They'll find Viking inscriptions on the East Coast and they're like, oh, look it, it's from 1300 years ago. This predates Columbus. And the scientific community goes, nope, no, it doesn't. That was just a chicken scratch and it looks like Norse symbols. And people will be like, well, you know, I felt it's weird. There's this tribe, we covered this in another story too. There's a tribe of Native Americans in the Southwest, and sometimes the kids are born with blonde hair and blue eyes, and they talk about a Viking ship, a ship with a dragon on its head, crashing, and they're like, nope, never happened. It's a coincidence. This, there, That is part of the scientific community still follows the Powell Doctrine, and it's weird because those are so minor things. Who cares if the Vikings showed up before Christopher Columbus? And Powell specifically says, nobody showed up before Christopher Columbus. Nobody. That's when the first Europeans came over. So this, it might sound like a little thing, but it's actually really big on how the scientific community and the Smithsonian specifically views earlier exploration of the United States. Powell, the Powell Doctrine put forth a hundred plus years of how the Smithsonian views Native Americans vis-a-vis European contact. And it didn't happen. It just didn't happen. So this is where we go back to the Giants. This is where we go back to Mount Shasta. Basically, what the what do all of those stories have about the people going underground and finding these caves? They all have proof of advanced civilizations existing either before the natives were in the area or at the same time the natives were in the area. And if that fact is true... And the Smithsonian believes that it cannot be true. If one of the leading scientific organizations in the United States believes that it cannot be true, they are faced with a choice. They can either rewrite 100 years of the Powell Doctrine, they can rethink the past 100 plus years of their thinking that there was no contact between the civilized Europeans and the barbaric natives, and that any writing, any customs, any building that is the same on the native soil that it is in any other part of the world is just a coincidence. Or, they destroy it. Now, again, I don't think the Smithsonian, as a organization, is destroying giant skeletons and covering up proof that there were more advanced races either before the natives or during the time of the natives, or really more advanced races than anyone else on Earth. But just because as an organization they may not be covering up that information, it doesn't mean that individuals so loyal to Powell and his doctrine and the belief that he put forth wouldn't take it upon themselves to destroy that information. And what's even more odd is that some people have pointed out that the Powell Doctrine, and in speeches and writings Powell later made, it may not have been his decision to put that forth. He may have been told, or ordered to, 
by someone higher up than him to make that claim. If that's the case, if the government actually set out to cover up the existence of advanced races in the United States from everyone and ordered leaders of the scientific community to be complicit in that cover-up, we have a lot more things to worry about than a few broken, giant skeletons. DeadRabbitRadio at gmail.com is going to be our email address. You can also hit us up at facebook.com slash deadrabbitradio. Twitter is at Jason O. Carpenter. Dead Rabbit Radio is the daily paranormal conspiracy and true crime podcast. You don't have to listen to it every day, but I'm glad you listened to it today. Have a great one, guys. <laughs>